it's one thing to try to create a world or escape a world because it's, you know, why a lot of people, some people read science fiction is to escape the world. I would rather improve the world. Hello and welcome to AI Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and I am here with Tania Johnson, who is a poet, a writer of speculative fiction, a songwriter, a performer. Hello. Thank you for coming today. Thank you for inviting me. So there is so much in your work. You deal a lot with identity. Mm -hmm. You deal with history. You deal with transformation. But I thought that what I'd really like to start with is Kentucky. All right. That's a great place to start. That's where I started. Right. I've been thinking a lot recently about movement and identity and Mm. kind of what's going on in the country with Mm. racial politics and with historical politics. And Kentucky is the the most northern state that was a slavery state. Mm Mm-hmm butts up against Ohio, Mm -hmm. which was a non-slavery state, and the river that separates Kentucky from Ohio Ohio, was the river that people had to cross when they were trying to escape to freedom. Yes. And there's a theme about that in your work. Hmm. You were nodding and agreeing when we were talking about the river. It's true. I mean, uh, I feel like it's a liminal space, you know, growing up on the edge of something. Even if it's knowing the history of being able to see freedom without having freedom. If you look at the story of Toni Morrison's Beloved, that's based upon a woman that was a slave in Kentucky. So Kentucky is a very um, complicated, beautiful, really complicated place that's filled with a tremendous amount of history that's still very present, but it's not stuck in its past. Growing up in Kentucky, I always tell people, no offense, Kentucky, it's a great place to be from. It's not always the best place to stay. So for me, that was very much the case. I felt like for me to be myself, I would have had to forget things that were impossible to forget. So my experience is one of someone that sort of uh, grew up between extremes. As far as class goes, you know, between two parents that had two very different lifestyles and very different opportunities. So I guess I'm always trying to find not the middle so much as a gap that a person can live in between the two places and sometimes be a bridge and sometimes just be in your own space. So Kentucky to me is it's beautiful nature and really honest people that sometimes are honest in the most wonderful ways, but also sometimes honest in the most confrontational ways. But I 100% appreciate that because I'd rather know than not know. Well, you do a lot in your work with race and with the history of slavery and mm. with the legacy that slavery continues and passes through generations. Mm -hmm. So how did you become so interested in that kind of storytelling? I think it's impossible not to be for me because I like looking at the hard things. I don't think you get over things. I think you get through them. With my particular upbringing between the two extremes and usually being uh, one of the very few or the only black person in a classroom, difference is ingrained. So it's, it's easy for me to see what I have in common with people but it's, it's everywhere. Like slavery did not go away because there's still this mindset that some people are less than and the mindset that they're in the position they're in, not because of this entire infrastructure and history, but because they're less than. Mm-hmm. Like people are still telling themselves stories mm-hmm. that justify that kind of treatment. So I think slavery just, it makes a really clear example of what can happen when you forget to identify with one another. So you mentioned your parents being two different extremes. Just class, really. They're both very smart. They're both very strong. But they both, uh, 
especially now that they're older, they have very different economic realities. So seeing those two extremes, I think, has, has given me a certain amount of respect for all different kinds of definitions of progress and success. When I was reading your work, it reminded me a little bit of Octavia Butler. That's a great compliment, so thank you. <laughs> so what speaks to you about her and about Toni Morrison, and then hmm. how does that influence your work, do you think? Just that legacy of truth-telling. Neither one of them wastes any words. And I, I love a succinct style where you just get to the point, but do it in a way where it still brings people in and there's a bit of poetry in it. Toni Morrison, I actually, I'm a big fan of her scholarly work, even more so than a lot of the novels. Uh, my favorite novel is probably her first, The Bluest Eye. And with Octavia Butler, it's, it's a lot. Short stories, the universes in the world she created, but there's a tremendous amount of social commentary in Octavia Butler. And I think that uh, for both of them is, is what's the same in my work. And I would say that they, it was a standard of excellence in your style that you need to pursue, even more so than, um, although it's inescapable, the fact that we're all black women. I think the way they said what they said encouraged me to sharpen my own voice and to really just edit everything unnecessary away. So you've written a novel. I have, I have. I've written a couple of novels. Revolution, which is a novel in stories, and Revolution is speculative fiction about genetics and slavery, essentially. It's a not-so-far future U.S. where biogenetic adaptations are abundant. It's just a, it's a consumer product. We can fix your genes for, your, for the next generation. But of course, it's very expensive, so only certain people can afford that. So the world becomes even more unequal than it is now because certain people are essentially evolving away from the rest of humanity because they have so many more advantages. And other people that can't afford those things, it's not just that they can't afford them, there's very little middle class, it's that they live in neighborhoods where their health is at risk, environmental racism, right? Because their means of production has to be produced somewhere and it's produced right next to those neighborhoods. Genes have also become a currency, so sometimes people will in order to get medical care, for instance, they will give them samples of their genes. So this brilliant genius comes along, Dr. Ezekiel Carter, and he decides to deliver genetic reparations for slavery. So he creates genetics far beyond anyone else's, and then he gives it away, first to poor black people, and then eventually just to poor people. Some people follow trends and they, they know what's, uh, what's present, and some people are looking towards what will happen from what's begun? Mm -hmm. You know, like, what's the end game here? Mm -hmm. If this is the current state, what are the possibilities for where that could go? One of the things that I really like about speculative fiction is that it gives you the opportunity to blow something up and magnify it to, to such a scale that it's inescapable. So if I create an entire society that's built on two or three tenets that are sort of under the surface here, they're more subtle. If you look at um, the forms of power, one of the most advanced forms of power is that they don't put chains on you anymore. That's the first. And the second one, you might police the people around you. The most powerful form, it's in your own mind. You control yourself with your thoughts. So I think right now we might be in the sort of environment where people think a certain way and they don't think that it's necessarily any powers that are acting on them. But if I make it physical again and I show it to you, instead of trying to unpack how these things are happening, you see it much more So clearly. give me an example of that. The entire world revolution, honestly. 
You could try to tell someone about the structures of power and how women are at a disadvantage and, and explain the dynamics of society to people. And they can poo-poo it away and say, no, it's there's no you know, wage gap, for instance. It's just because they're less qualified or this or that. They can explain it away. But if you use a story that intensifies that dynamic and makes it extreme, then people really have to look at it and see if it has any bearing mm-hmm. in reality. You know, mm-hmm. where did that come from? Mm-hmm. Is there anything on a smaller scale now mm-hmm. that speaks to that? Mm-hmm. So. I think I read this when I was looking at your website about, you know, what is the artist doing when everything is on fire? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I think you keep working. I think as an artist in general, you keep working because the world needs that work. And it is the salve for some people. It's an inspiration that gets other people moving. But that's what you have to offer. That's your gift. We all have a gift and our gifts, they complement one another. And without any of them, then everything can't happen. Then you do what you're here to do, what it is that you do best. So someone else can do what they do best. We enable one another. I think for the artist, that's generally the case. I think for me in particular, I have also reached a level of frustration where um, I don't want to just inspire, I want to empower. Mm -hmm. So that's why I find it necessary for myself only to find ways that I can develop other gifts that I have that can change the physical reality that people deal with on a daily basis, as well as finding a way to leverage the art into something that's a little bit more um, tactile and kinetic, an application of all this hope, Mm -hmm. an application of all these speculations, you know. It's one thing to try to create a world or escape a world because it's, you know, why a lot of people, some people read science fiction is to escape the world. I would rather um, improve the world. And really do both. I don't want people to have to give up their escapes, but I want them to not have to escape. I just want to give people tools for change. When did you start writing, or when did you begin to discover yourself as a writer? As a little kid. I think my first story, I was very small, three or four. I think I started with a story or a song. I honestly don't know which one came first. But I remember finding a book from when I was that age and I really I loved reading but I didn't oddly I didn't read that many novels when I was very small I was a popular mechanics library Mm. and I liked taking things apart all the things National Geographic but I read a lot about mechanical operations and machines I don't know why I think my dad used to build cars and I was sort of fascinated with that like that was his hobby (laughs) so I think that made me um, gravitate towards how things work and how things work together and then the the leap from how things work to the written page or yeah I don't know like honestly my my, my family would probably say that I used to tell a lot of stories but I started as a poet actually okay. so little kid wrote sh- stories and then when I got a little bit older I really I liked the way things sounded mm-hmm. and I wanted to find the best way to describe something so poetry was um, a wonderful vehicle for that and I still love poetry but at some point I decided that I couldn't make a career out of poetry, which is not true. You could do that if you wanted to, just in case you were thinking about it. But my story ideas got too big for poetry mm-hmm. after a while, and mm-hmm. I didn't want them to be metaphors anymore. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to be something that was a little bit more functional than a metaphor. And then they just kept getting bigger and bigger. And speculative fiction is great for that. I was looking at Just a Suggestion. 
Ah, yeah. A musical narrative missing its music. And, and I was reading it, and it's a beautiful poem, but it also seemed to me very much in moving into storytelling. Yeah. That's actually, that's, that truly is a musical narrative. That's a performance piece. Oh, yeah? Yeah, about my grandmothers. Um, but that was actually, I did that piece at uh, Joe's Pub when I was in grad school. So there's a whole musical score to it, and certain parts are spoken, and certain parts are, are just music. And that's sort of the transition where it's been very, it's artificial for me to separate music from fiction or storytelling, because I, I think of them all as stories. So speculative fiction generally is the idea of looking either at alternative worlds or future mm -hmm. worlds. Mm -hmm. And yet you have such an interest also in historical worlds. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. I think we all came from somewhere, you know, we're sort of the product of everything that came before. And it's impossible for me not to come at it from that perspective. And my own elders, obviously, they, they left indelible marks, you know, and I had tremendous respect for them and seeing someone go from, because I remember when they were middle-aged to the point where they're not here anymore. Life is generations, and I don't see why we shouldn't try to learn from those who came before if we want to get somewhere worth getting to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. What are some of those things we might learn? How not to waste your life, how to treat one another, how to treat yourself, how not to believe everything you hear and trust yourself. Those are the things I think that my elders have taught me. My, my nanny, she told a lot of stories about her grandmother. She gave that knowledge that otherwise just would have died. You know, things that you, that seemed incredible, that seemed like tall tales. They did what? And just because they're things that we don't do now, like moving houses with logs, just things that are outside the scope of our personal experience. And my paternal grandfather was more just about his experiences in his day as, you know, the man he was in the war that he fought. So they've all lived lives that I'll never live, but they've given me pieces of them so that I can learn. What are you working on now? Oh, everything. Everything. <laughs> everything. The sequel to Revolution that's coming out, Evolution. Oh, how exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. It is exciting. Also working on a fiction album. I have a short story collection that's coming out next year from uh, Rosarian Publishing, which has a ton of great titles. So that's I'm very happy about that. And Multimedia Works, taking the story off the page. Did a piece for Chad Mize, Mize Gallery. It was for Black History Month. So I created a piece that was an artifact from a museum that doesn't exist here in this world, in this plane right now. This new series that I want to do, Future Artifacts, where it's essentially taking objects out of the worlds that I create mm -hmm. and having them displayed in an installation, in this particular case, you know, up for sale. Because I like playing with that, the gap between what's real and what's not. I saw that piece. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't move for a while. I just had to stay yeah, there and sit one. with it. I mean, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I was afraid it would be a, a bit much for some people, but... Can you describe that? Would good. you mind? It's a photo and an explanation and... There's a title that's across the front of it. Essentially, it's made to mimic something you would see in, in a history museum right. for a display. Right. So across the top, it says, I wish a motherfucker would. And then it gives an explanation of the point in time where this great figure in this particular world uttered those words. And a photo that accompanies it because it's the last thing, uh, the last image that she took. She was a photographer before she was going to debtor's prison. Because in this particular world, they have debtor's prison, and of course she becomes this amazing revolutionary. It's 
I don't know what it would be equivalent to if like Nat Turner took a photo of something and then said something famous and then there was a story explaining the photo and the saying. It's essentially that. And what was it about for you? For me, it was it was about bridging the gap. Lifetimes last a certain amount of time. And there's some things that I'll never be able to see within my own lifetime. So some of it is also about creating those moments, glimpsing that world that won't ever be or that I might not see. How does somebody create a full world with all the history and all the interrelationships mm-hmm. and, you know, the texture and the colors? and Yeah. The world building is actually my favorite part. All right. I think you just have to have that propensity. There's some people that just almost in a different application you overthink, but you find patterns, things converge, and it's just the most exciting thing to come up with a world. And I've... <laughs> I know some fellow writers that really just have like rooms dedicated to the images, the photos of this, the that, the music, everything. And I don't necessarily uh, create that space within my own home first, but you just, you start with what the story is about or what the story absolutely needs. And then you extrapolate from there. And if you're going to do it well, it has to make internal sense. Because mm-hmm. if you ever want to see a story that's not so great, it's because they just threw a bunch of things in that don't actually make internal sense. Do your research. Don't forget to flesh out your characters and decide uh, what's definitive about it and what is absolutely necessary to make the world come alive. You also sing. I do, I do. I only perform my own work, but not in a band. I've been in bands before, but I was a percussionist. Oh, yeah. So I was never the singer. But I wrote a lot of songs, so it just, you know, went together after a while. So how do you decide it's a song or a story? They almost have no relation. <laughs> like, it just starts off as one songs. It's usually um, the words or the melody just come to me. And sometimes I'll just actually, I'll be playing the guitar and the, the song will start to come out. But stories, it could be the size of the idea. Because it's almost, I don't want to say things come fully formed, but their form comes first. You know, a poem idea is never a song idea, is never a story idea. And those ones where they're sort of in between just becomes multimedia, but usually they're very distinct. You wrote a story called Bear. Yes, I did. All right. <laughs> you published that in the Creative Pinellas Journal. Yes. It's a story that I uh, perform a lot, and uh, it's one that I enjoy performing to see how the audience reacts. But I would categorize it as resonant and not necessarily um, gore for the sake of gore. It's a little bit, there's a little bit more, it's not violence, but there's some elements in it that I don't normally put in stories, but that was sort of the point. It's about exposure. Mm -hmm. And it came from a place where the real and the unreal definitely came together. It was inspired by true events, but obviously not that true. You know, there's a line in it where it goes from things that happen to things that, uh, where the metaphor unpacks itself to a certain extent. I mean, so I'm choosing not to kind of do the spoiler, you know, spoiler alert thing, and you're also choosing not to, but may may I? Would you mind if I? I, Well, sure, go ahead. Okay, so a woman goes to see her lover perform Mm -hmm. at a very upscale strip club, essentially. Yeah. And then as girlfriend is using the song that the woman Mm. identifies as their love song, their Mm -hmm. romantic song. Mm. And the woman who's removing her clothes takes off her top and reveals mm-hmm. herself. And the woman in the audience is like, oh, you know, this isn't so 
I expected more. Oh, well, I think, yeah, the woman in the audience expected men to be leering at her lover. Right. So that's what she's been so tense about. So when they don't leer, when she takes her clothes off, then she, that's the part where she was expecting, you know, right. uh, to have a more negative reaction and, at that point. And then the woman on the stage starts taking off her skin. Yes, then she starts stripping away her skin. And that's when the men come alive. Right. Yeah. So you were focused on the men's reaction. Mm-hmm. I was sort of focused on what it meant for the woman who was peeling her skin mm-hmm. off. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the protagonist, I think, is most concerned with people leering at her girlfriend. But yeah, the woman, uh, and, and what would lead a person to do that? You know, and voluntarily, very much voluntarily, this is not a woman that's, you know, doing it for the money necessarily. She's doing it for the actual act. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's the entire dynamic between the audience and the two women is the story, you know, and, and their motivations for being in that moment and all the discomfort that happens during this extreme, if not grotesque, act. Oh, and for me, you know, what are we without our skin? Mm. Indeed. I mean, certainly that's a transition of identity. Yeah. Yeah. And a change of, sort of change of presence, certainly. Yeah, and it really messes with your notions of beauty and the fact that this is what you're hooting and hollering at. You know, there's a lot of violence in that as well. This yeah. is what you were waiting for. Yeah. <laughs> so. a, a sort of real confrontation with your identity. Mm-hmm. Certainly she's confronting her girlfriend, who's mm-hmm. in the audience, because she invited the girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And certainly she's confronting the men. Mm-hmm. But also that moment of, of sort of defining who you are. And she sees it as art. You know, that's like her ultimate performative act. Yeah. And that's why she does it. So that particular mindset and having known all different kinds of people and sometimes what they, um, what they value about themselves and what they think is valuable in general can be very challenging, you know, and, and what they're willing to give away to make a point. So I, that was certainly part of the story as well. And just the whole notion of, you know, the look and the gaze and what you give up voluntarily versus what you have taken away from you. And is it possible to do certain acts and still be okay? Like, does a sane person ever do certain things? Are there good reasons to do certain things? It just scared me. <laughs> well, yeah, it's one of those stories. It's, it's uh, that one I kind of want to, to stick with you. It's like an encapsulation of a lot of dynamic forces at once. There are certain stories that I think are, um, they do things more so than they are things. I really appreciate getting feedback. Uh, when people take the time to write an email and send it, I think that's huge, honestly, that you, uh, you know, it inspired you to do something. You want to be in dialogue now. I think that's great. And I very much think of stories as somewhat collaborative. Like I can write it, but until you read it and create those images in your mind or until you listen to it and experience it in that moment, it's not really activated. So. As a writer, it's the multimedia projects right now. All right. It's the musical narratives. It's bringing stories off the page and onto either onto a screen, probably a monitor, just a lot of web development, finding new ways to reach people with the stories, finding new ways for people to interact with stories. So is there a particular story? There's a particular series of stories oh, that I'm working well. on. Essentially, the concept is space is, is not silent. There are stories uh, throughout it. First story that they're able to translate is uh, a particular life. 
So everything that they're able to understand is in the key of this person because they're using that as the basis for this machine that translates it. It's all the stories that are swirling around in space, be it from a pulsar, from collapsed stars, or planets that once were and now aren't. Would you be able to give us an example of a musical narrative? Something people listen to. So whether it's a live performance or whether it's something that's recorded or something that they can find on their phone or on a website. So essentially it's storytelling to music. So there are spaces, spaces where words fail and that's where the music comes in. Actually, if you go to my website, there's the beginning of Glider is there. So what is Glider exactly? It's a piece about a girl that's trying to find her way and she hears a... I won't call it a tall tale. She hears a story about someone else that was in a similar situation and goes to the top of a, a mountain because she thinks she's found her answer and she falls. And then the wind catches her and she finds out that in fact she's a glider. So She's as a human being is a glider. Yeah, so I guess you could say that's about identity as well. And then the, um, the narrator takes this as inspiration to find her own path. Well, Tania Johnson, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you. Um, I am so excited about your work and about your new novels coming out, short stories. It's always nice when they finally make their way out into the world. Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners. Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. And if you're enjoying this program, we hope you'll take a moment to give us a review. It's easy to subscribe to on your favorite podcast service. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.